The startup game has changed and only the most agile will make it to the other side. I'm your host, Michael Martocci, founder and CEO of SwagUp, and this is Out of the Woods, a show where we interview top startup founders, executives, and investors to hear how they're navigating the rapidly changing economic environment. We'll share real-time insights, strategies, and stories from those in the trenches with the goal to help as many teams level up their execution and make it out of the woods. So with that in mind, let's dive in. All right, welcome back to the Out of the Woods podcast. This is the, I think over 50% of guests have been Miami guests. And I think it's just testament to kind of the network of, of people here and the bond that, that everyone created as they as they came down here. But excited to have Dan Snow on here. I, can, I don't even know what the right title for you is because you're involved in so many different things. But I guess I'll just say serial entrepreneur and investor, very, very heavily in the e-commerce world, social media world. Excited to have you on and excited to dive into some stuff here. Yeah, I would say that, that title is about right. And uh, more importantly, two former, formerly New Jersey guys now living in Miami. Yeah, we, we've done a pretty good job getting some more people down here. I mean, it's, it's kind of like little New York, little New Jersey here. Um, and what, what, what's your kind of like synopsis now? You've been here for a little over a year or so, right? Like what's, yeah. what's your take? I've been here, so I moved February 1st of 21, so a little over a year and a half. My take is that, I tell everyone this, Miami's the best city in the world to, yeah. to live. Um, you know, I can't think, of, and I, I, I tra- even this summer, I was traveling for five and a half weeks. I was in many large cities and some islands, and every, everywhere I go, I'm like, my, like, none of these cities come close to Miami from the quality of life, um, type of people you meet. My interests, you know, I'm very involved, like health and fitness, um, water, you know, I love water sports and all that. So to me, Miami, I mean, Miami is the best city in the world. Like I'm able to meet amazing people regularly. It's beautiful. Zero tax. Like I can't think of anything else I could want other than mountains would be nice, but can't have it all. So even better than Tel Aviv. I know, you know, you're, I think it's really right. You go back there a lot. It's pretty similar. I mean, at least from what I've heard, it's a similar kind of city and setup. So Tel Aviv to me is a lot more Williamsburg-ish. Like it's structure, it's the infrastructure is just a mess. So what I like about Miami is that it's very clean. Like you walk, you know, it's like the roads are normal, normal looking roads. Like it's you know, it, it's well taken care of. Tel Aviv is just like all over the place. Like Israelis call it Balagan, like it's a mess. So um, for that reason, I that's like the one knock I have against it. If it was as like put together as Miami, then I would definitely consider it to live. I, I mean, I would love, love to spend more time there, just have a lot of family there and whatnot, but um, still to me, Miami, Miami is the best neck and shoulder. Yeah. You say the city of Miami is the sponsor of this podcast because we're always hyping it up when, when people <laughs> come on. What do you think? What's your you? prediction? What do you think? I mean, so I've been here for a little bit longer. Like we were coming down part time four years ago, back and forth. And then it was uh, May of 2020. So maybe like eight or nine months before you'd gotten here that we came down full time. And you know, we've spent time in Fort Lauderdale. We've spent time in Miami. We're in Fort Lauderdale right now. I think this whole entire strip, anywhere from Palm Beach down to, you know, Coconut Grove, Coral Gables. It's just some of the most beautiful places in America. I think the the thing that I've always loved about it is just kind of the freeness of the society here. You know, people aren't super judgmental. You know, people kind of just do whatever they want. It's a melting pot of different cultures, lots of Latin Americans that went through different kind of socialist and communist regimes, and, and they come here and they want the opposite of that. So it just kind of builds this culture of kind of let people do what they want to do, like open businesses and, and kind of this free society. So, I, you know, I, I enjoy that. And obviously the lifestyle is great. You know, I like to play golf. You can you can play golf here a lot. You can do, you know, somebody brings you out on their boat on the weekend. Like there's always something going on. I mean, like three, four or five nights a week, I'm getting an invite to do something. And, I, and you know, in New Jersey, when it gets a little cold, there's basically nothing to do. It's like, okay, let's go to like the mall. Let's go to a yeah. movie or like, what do you do for seven, eight months? It's just depressing. Yeah, I, I would do nothing on the weekend to answer your, answer your point, which would, let, which would lead me to working more, right? Because there's just, like, yeah. nothing to do. Like, 
There's something to be said about like San Francisco and New York as good places to start companies because you don't really have much else to kind of do. Obviously, in New York, there's a lot, but it gets cold in the winter and stuff, and you're just more focused maybe. But at the same time, there's benefits of just being you know healthy and yeah. out in the sun and you know meeting other people that are also great for business. Yeah, I think having a better quality of life should always come first versus putting in a few extra hours in your business because you, you're miserable. Um, and, you, and you've gotten into much better shape too. I mean, you were already on that journey, I think, before you got here, but I'm sure it's helped a lot. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. You know, living living in the Northeast, it's it's like accustomed to having the, the winter vibe, right? Because it just you, you get cold. Doesn't matter. You know, you can hide it behind yeah. a hoodie or something. Miami, you're on the beach all year round, so you got to maintain. Uh, and yep. it's just a very it's just a very healthy city. It's it's easy and fun to to, to stay fit right like i live on the boardwalk it's beautiful it like makes me want to run versus you know being let's say in the northeast it's like disgusting and smelly in a lot of parts so what do you what do you what do you think happens here over the next few years does it continue the momentum does it continue to be kind of its own isolated real estate market where things are just always kind of you know hot and everyone wants to come here do you think it cools down at all um i think that in the short term, I don't see a reason for the demand to slow down, especially as remote work becomes more accessible. I mean, it's like pretty much the standard, except for certain industries. Like I know some, you know, in, in finance and real estate, a lot of those sort of companies are still mandatory in office. Like I have some friends um, specifically in finance and real estate that really want to move to Miami and their companies just won't let them right now. Um so outside of kind of those industries, I it, it seems like there's still a huge demand for Miami, and for good reason, to my in my opinion, it's just a no-brainer. Like, why would anyone that's, especially people who are making money, right? Like, why would you be? Why would you want to pay a premium to live in New York or California? To I mean, to me, that doesn't it doesn't like it, it really doesn't make sense, especially when the a lot of the times people would say they would pinpoint, oh, New York is great because of the people. Well, if all those, a lot of those people are now in Miami, like what's the, what, 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 what is the, the, the value prop of New York anymore? I don't, I, I don't, I don't see it. And it's why I get jaded, especially because New York has handled COVID so poorly um, that it just, I have like this disdain for it now, especially when people compare like Miami versus New York. But uh, yeah, so I think there's going to continue to be demand. And for that reason, I think that, you know, the real estate market will continue to be competitive. We'll see, though, now with interest rates and everything that, you know, I'm sure that that's going to in the, in the short term. I think the majority yeah. of buyers down here are buying these homes in cash, too. Yeah. Know, so that's the thing is that and I talked to a real estate agent yesterday, actually. So that housing prices haven't come. And this is kind of what, to my knowledge, that it's really affecting the whole country. Um, high level is that how the housing market hasn't come down much because people have money. In 2008, people didn't have money and they were, and they were foreclosed. That's why you know, it caused the housing crisis. So now there's the, the, the level of activity is just, has gone down tremendously because it's the buyers and sellers are at a standstill because the buyers don't wanna pay what, you know, what interest rates were six months ago, uh, pay the same price and now interest rates have what more than double yeah more yep. than double than it's over like 6.2 6.3 yeah. like half. in december i got my condo at 2.75 uh percent interest and now i think today i saw 6.3 for a 30-year fixed mortgage so like that's yeah. insane and if you're a seller too i mean unless it's your second home you know, then you got to go find another house and get a new mortgage at much higher rates. Like, you know, so supply is going to be somewhat capped in that sense as well. Yeah, exactly. So it just seems like the level of activity is, well, that's what's not seen as it's what's happening. The level of, of, of transactions has gone down tremendously for that reason. Um, I'm sure price, prices will, will come down eventually, maybe over the next 12 months if rates continue to rise, but We'll see. I'm still very bullish on the on Miami, though. For sure. Likewise. So let's get into some of your your backstory. I mean, from what I know, I mean, I think I first kind of ran across you when you were just getting out of college. I, I think you had a business in college, right? That kind of got you. Did you end up dropping out, or did you you end up getting a degree, but you had this business already kind of like coming and up and running, and then 
ended up just keep keep going with it. And then before that, were were you a lifelong entrepreneur, like as a as a four, five, six, seven year old kid, or is it something that you picked up kind of later on? So the first question, I had a few businesses in college, so it got started just growing social media pages, which was like my first entryway into just like the online world, right? Um, and that led me into growing an audience, monetizing an audience, um, which led to like my, my first business in college, maybe referring to um, Caffeine Digital, which really blew up. Um, we had, you know, 3,000, it was a self-serve advertising platform at the time specifically geared towards publishers on Twitter and Instagram. So essentially whoever had a large following typically for niche based audiences, like someone who owned a makeup audience or sports or comedy, whatever, eventually moved into influencers. But yeah, that business blew up my senior year of college. Um, we did like $8 million in revenue that year. But I stayed in college. And you're like in your dorm room, like yeah. just falling out with this business. Like, was it cash flowing a lot too? Or was it more you're yeah. reinvesting? Uh, yeah, I mean, that year I paid over a million dollars in taxes. So <laughs> it made a lot of money. But, and then while you're going to like some business class at school, like they're trying to teach you like the four P's of marketing or something. It was actually pretty funny because I was a biology major. I was, I was pre I was in the accelerated dental program and I, I wanted to take the entrepreneur class, which it was a 400 level business. She class. just taught it. Yeah. So it was a 400 level business class. So I had to like write letters to the Dean of business and like show him that I had these businesses and, do this whole like process, unnecessary process. This is Ramapo, right? This was at Ramapo, yeah. And it was just like, uh, just like, I, I don't want to- You couldn't convince them? It just wasn't like, there was no value in the class. Like all we did was just read case studies on a few startups and like, that was it. Like, that was it. We read like a Harvard review, whatever case study on yeah, yeah. girls, like rent the runway and urban decay and like random startups. And like, that was it. We just read them and talked about them and, and that was it. But yeah, I was a biology major. I, st I stayed in, in school because um, number one, I think my parents would have had a heart attack. <laughs> uh, number two, my business really took off my senior year of college. And I figured, you know, let me like, number one, I enjoyed college. I had a great group of friends. I was in a fraternity. I had, you know, I was in a relationship at the time. So like there was a lot of good things going in college for my social life as well. And I figured that I could do both. So, and it's what I did, you know, I was in class literally on my laptop, like working on my business. Uh, so just did like the absolute bare minimum, got my first. Did your friends like know what you were up to? Did they know you were making like a few million dollars a year? Were, were you like changing your lifestyle in school and being like the baller on campus that had like bottle service in their dorm room or something i didn't change my lifestyle at all um i, I didn't buy i didn't the only thing i bought i bought like a, a rolex i bought a rolex uh outside of that that year i didn't buy anything the next year you know actually i bought my condo my senior year of college but i only closed on it after i graduated um so, but like during college i didn't i didn't ball out didn't you know buy bottles at clubs and all, all that um, I didn't tell anyone, I don't think I told anyone at the time how much I was making, even my parents, but a lot of my, fr so my friends had an idea of what was going on because essentially my whole fraternity started working for me my senior <laughs> year of college. Like my whole friend group, everyone was working for me, showed them what, showed them what to do. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, and then to answer your other question, um, anyways, yeah. So after college, that's, that's when we connected with GoCase. So I started GoCase in 2016. I graduated 2015. So a, a year essentially after I graduated, I launched GoCase. Was the natural progression you had saw like how powerful influencers are for driving, you know, business and you're like, okay, what's a product that we can sell that we can tap into this, you know, influence and channel to, you know, to build a brand around it. Yeah, that's exactly correct. So I wanted to build a more sustainable business because a lot of the, ads through our platform were essentially through affiliate marketing. And at the time, Instagram and Twitter were starting to crack down on these just like tracking links. So it just made the entire business a lot harder to send traffic organically. 
And that was also when the algorithm then got introduced. So there was just a lot of things culminating and I just didn't foresee specifically this. I tried to, we tried turning it in, into a more sustainable business with it was just like a true self-serve platform, connecting influencers to brands, which was pretty ahead of its time because this was 2015, yeah. right? And now people are still trying to do this in 2022 and raising tens of millions of dollars to do it. But uh, me and my partner kind of had a falling out at the time as well and kind of just like stopped going that route. So um, yeah, so it's exactly what you said. It was a natural progression. We had an amazing uh, ability to send traffic via influencers and whatnot, just as we were doing for the offers on our platform and found, found products, which led to be multiple products that we then uh, leverage these kind of relationships and whatnot. Um, How did you make the decision, like what product to even go into first? I mean, you, there's millions of suppliers yeah. out there. And I guess you, did you go through Alibaba to find samples and suppliers and stuff? Yeah. So we had a whole testing process at that time. Um, my partner, Matt and, and John, my brother. So we were at, at one point testing, you know, five products a day through ads and, and influencers to see kind of outliers and, and what we would look for, you know, in terms of conversion rates return on ad spend for just kind of like generic content. And then there was a progression. So if like there was an outlier that we could see, you know, profitability um, upfront, typically we would go for a, a, a product that that's, has a wide ranging audience because that's, that was kind of like what was best for, uh, for influencers and Twitter, which we, we had, a, we had a huge ability to send traffic from Twitter at the time. So that's why the phone case works, right? Because everyone has a phone. It was a sticky phone case. So we found all the different ways people could use it and created customized content for those audiences. It, it lended itself really well to like user generated content. Exactly. Just like that remarketability of like, wow, this is so different and interesting. Exactly. So at the time specifically, it was like typically what we found is things that can sell through video that you can see in effect, right? So like our two biggest products were the phone case. You can see it stick and shapewear where you could see that like the the effect it creates with a woman's body so through video so um yeah that was, and then we, we just kept we repeated that process for for dozens of products um yeah and then to answer your other question so i was definitely a lifelong entrepreneur you know i was i was that kid like selling gum on the, on the, on the school bus i don't know i don't know a young how, hustler i hustle yeah i've always been that person um, I was always kind of a, a, like, even in video games, you know, addicted to like, I got addicted to video games because I just enjoyed that process of like going through the levels and the game, gamification of it and so forth. So when it came to like running online businesses, it was, it was kind of, um, you know, to me, kind of like a video game. So that, that, that was how I kind of was able to, to, to really enjoy what I did early on. But yeah, so I was always an entrepreneur, but I, I didn't come from a family of entrepreneurs. My dad is an aerospace engineer. And mom, my mom is an occupational therapist and none of my uncles, cousin, no one in my family is an entrepreneur. And I got a ton of pushback from my parents for years. Um, so I had no support from my family initially, not no support for my friends. So. If anything, I think and New Jersey is not like the most entrepreneurial ecosystem either. It's not like you don't grow up with a bunch of friends that go on and start like, you know, technology businesses yeah. or fast growing businesses. It's a lot of, you know, mom and pop kind of businesses yeah. or they just work, you know, in finance in the city or something. There's pretty predefined tracks, I feel like, for everyone you grow up with. Yeah. And it's honestly, it's, it's really interesting hearing people's take on this because all, I, I've met a lot of people that said I had support from my parents and it was great. And then some people kind of. So I've, I met another, you know, plenty of other people that said I didn't have support from my parents and I attribute this to my business not growing as fast as it could have. How I see it is my lack of support gave me kind of a chip on my shoulder, which what, like allowed me to, you know, want, but I, I'm also a very competitive person to kind of like prove it to them. And that was actually a big reason why I never told anyone about my initial success because like, I, you know, wanted to just like i don't know keep it quiet sure had like some strength power i was also actually very scared another big reason i was i was scared that i would fail <laughs> i didn't want to show success and then have failure and then like go down from this high to this low 
which was like, you know, scary to me at the time because I was 21, 22. And it seemed like unsustainable for me to, to like keep growing businesses and whatnot. But, uh, yeah. So if anything, my, my lack of support early on, I think was a big reason why I was so successful was because he gave me that chip on my shoulder to kind of prove everyone wrong, which definitely motivated me. Yep. And what'd you learn, you know, when you got into the e-commerce business, now you have a product, now you're, you're selling it yourself first party. What was kind of the evolution of influencer marketing from when you started in 2015 to when you, know, you sold the, the physical product businesses and stuff? Now you've gotten back into like having your own brand and stuff. But what, what kind of changed around influencer marketing at the time? And then also it, it looked like you started to actually do the fulfillment yourself. And I remember seeing videos and pictures of a bunch of these mailers like in your warehouse kind of packed up and stuff. Why why'd you decide to go down that route to do it yourself? And, and will you ever do that again? So the first, I'll answer the second question first. So I came, this was a really, I always tell everyone the worst decision I've ever made was trying to do fulfillment myself. Everyone told me not to. And, but when, you know, when, when you run the numbers, it was, you know, first off, you keep in mind also, this was 2016. And, you know, there, there, there was no community. The ship bobs, the ship monks, all those. Yeah, were, so, so number one, but the other thing is that there was no true communities as there are now about connecting with other people that have brands, you know, on Twitter, right? The D2C community, none of this existed in 2016. So it's not like I can, like, get easy, accessible information from, like, successful people unless I, unless I uh, reached out to them on LinkedIn or whatever. So, um the kind of like accessible information growing a business or growing an e-commerce business wasn't as yeah kind of like i said accessible so it was also it was stubbornness and it was also a function of my prior business was all digital like i didn't it, it, it honestly felt like i made too much money too easy and it wasn't real so i wanted to like get my hands yeah, touch something, on touch something you know what i mean and uh, I didn't, I guess I didn't, uh, I realized very early on that I made a mistake and the mistake just getting, got bigger and bigger and bigger faster because the business just blew up from day one. Like there wasn't a ramping up period. You know, our first week we were already, like we already had, you know, 50,000 units ordered and we had moved offices like three times. <laughs> so we kind of got ourselves in this deep, deep hole and never slowed down. So the problem's getting big, just getting bitter, bigger, pushed back more and more. Um, Cause it's really hard to, as you know, to, to try and switch warehouses and scale the business, right? You essentially can't ship orders for two weeks, which or more, which is a big freaking issue. Um, and just a whole, it's, it's, it, it, it's just a huge pain in the ass. So, Eventually, it, it just got so big that we got rid of it. We got a good deal of fulfillment because we were doing so much volume. The fulfillment center paid for the entire process. They paid for our lease even in the warehouse. Um, but along the way, I think I always attribute uh, a big reason why not as many uh, customers were repeat customers as they should have was because of the issues we had during the fulfillment process. and and, and the, that, um, affecting the customer experience. So yep. it was the biggest mistake. I think we fulfilled though, we're like a million orders during my time period. Um, it was some of the most stressful days I had. I, I got so fat during my first black Friday, I was packing orders. I was packing orders. We were doing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a day and I, we stopped marketing and I was packing orders. Like that was the stupidest thing. Ever. It was such a bad idea. There's something good about it. Yeah. You know, just being able to have those stories and experiences though, like to look back on it, like, wow, that was like so ridiculous. But at the same time you did it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it's great stories and it's, it's we have great photos and whatever from it. But now I get to tell everyone, learn from my mistakes, right? Do not do this. And I think it resonates with people. Yeah. So yeah. hundred percent. And then I was curious too, just, you know, cause in about 2016, you know, my perspective on influencers was, 
you know, influencers are driving so much of the, you know, brand recognition and the sales and the traffic. Why aren't these influencers spinning up their own brands versus like kind of just like snap, you know, labeling themselves, attaching them to different brands and getting a 10, 15, 20% cut. So I, I always felt like, Hey, let's start developing brands for these influencers. And that's kind of played out over these last few years. But have you seen that where, you know, are influencers still as effective in, in terms of driving traffic to existing brands versus, you know, developing some of their own? Like what's been the trends over the last few years? I mean, comparing it to 2016, you, you can't compare, you know, it's night and day. There was, there was no, there, it was chronological. So pre, pre algorithm on social media, um, influencers were a lot more valuable because you, you, you could essentially predict how much traffic they'd be able to send because you, it, it didn't deviate too much from, from the norm or, or your other experience with people, similar audiences, et cetera. So it was a lot more predictive. And for that reason, you could scale it a lot easier because you kind of had an idea of what to expect from that traffic. Now it became so hard because number one, influencers got incredibly more expensive. Um, and their reach decreased substantially for the most part. Um, so for that reason, obviously it's a lot harder to become profitable leveraging influencers. I still think that influencers are essential for, for growing an actual brand, right? Like you can drive revenue from, from ads, but if you're solely reliant on ads, to me, it's hard to build an actual brand that way. Um, because people, you get brand equity from like, from what I see likeness from influencers. And if you're doing at scale, you you're able to get more and more of, of those, of those influencer celebrities, whatever likeness. And that's how people kind of recognize your brand. So, and you see that even with some of the biggest brands today, some of the biggest brands that have been acquired, like on it, you know, people don't say, Oh, on it. I see it on a Facebook ad. They say immediately say, Oh, on it, Joe Rogan. Right. Like, so you, you see that you're right. Fashion Nova. People think multiple things. They think Cardi B, they think the Kardashians, they think. So I, I think influencers are absolutely essential for building a brand. But if you just want to generate revenue, I don't think they're, they're essential. Um, but yeah. So if that answers your question. Is it, is it kind of like a bar, like a dumbbell approach where the, you know, the small micro influencers at scale do a lot are really impactful. And then the biggest influencers influencers in the world are really impactful, but maybe some in the middle is less impactful because there's people like Joe Rogan, Kim Kardashian stuff, no matter what they do, that brand is going to just take off immediately. It's going to be doing, you know, a few hundred million dollars in sales in the, in the first year or two or something. Um, but are, you know, is that what you see? And is that even feasible for a brand to be paying those types of people? Are they untouchable from a cost standpoint? And do the micro influencers still still work at scale? I don't use micro influencers for traffic. I've never really had much success with that. Um, I use them as I just call them. I don't even call them micro influencers. I just call them creators. So if I want content, then um, I'll you know leverage micro influencers for for specifically creative for ads that might represent a demographic that I want to go after. So I personally haven't seen micro influence. And I, I know other people have had success, but just my own experience, I haven't had success seeing micro influencers make an impact on revenue. Um, but they're obviously great for, for content. And, and that can be pretty, you know, meaningful if, if you're able to get creators that, that can create content for the ads that you're running whatever. Um, but yeah, just like you said, it's kind of the people in the middle that are this like in between where they don't have that great relation, like emotional relationship with their audience enough to drive traffic or have purchase intent. Um, so that's exactly the type of people that we like we've tested with and, and just aren't great for investing money into. So yeah. When it, when it comes to working with if you're going to go after the ones that have a great, you know, engagement rates and are well known and can bring brand equity to a brand and stuff, how do you go about negotiating a deal with them? Like, what do they care about these days? Is it all about equity for them? They want the upside. Is it all, you know, is it cash up front? And, you know, if you're, if you're an up and coming brand, that's maybe only doing a couple million, but you really believe in it, but you don't have the cash to be investing in somebody like that. Is that, is it still possible to get somebody of that caliber in the door if they really love the product? So I, the last two to three years, I haven't been too deep 
on influencer at that scale like I was in the past. So I like I it just hasn't you know because we've mainly just been focusing on ads. But from what I've seen, um, as a whole, people still want the same thing. They want money, right? You can you can find people that might be interested in equity or get creative or whatever. But I would say it's more the exception, not the case. So in general, influencers still just, just want money. They want to get paid, post it, and it's still kind of the same thing that, that it's always been. But sure, you can definitely find people that can get creative, but it's, it's, it's definitely not the standard. Yep. Cool. Well, I want to transition to the back half and just, you know, and we can go through kind of rap TV and, and the, um, you know, the agency as well. Cause I'm curious kind of how those are faring through some of this stuff, but what's, what's your take for somebody who's kind of hiding under a rock and not looking at, you know, the economy or Twitter or the news or whatever, what, what's your take on what's going on in, in kind of the economic environment and how, how much, do you think it impacts you know startups and how much founders should be thinking about it and how much they should be just kind of focused on their their day to day and their business? So I would say like right now, if you're a business owner and you're not kind of thinking in in, in sense as like right now is just survival mode to me like that that's what it it feels like right. You're seeing you're seeing signals from from big companies, small companies, medium sized companies. There's layoffs happening everywhere. I have, you know, an anecdote. I have a friend that has has had a great job, award-winning employee, et cetera, et cetera, um, laid off because of budget cuts. That's it. Lost accounts, whatever, and that's it, you know, completely out of nowhere. And I think there's a lot of examples like that going on. Um, and you're seeing it everywhere, right? You're seeing it from... The venture-backed businesses, you're seeing small businesses not being able to, to be able to raise money. Um, definitely uh, people who are trying to raise money are struggling in every category, specifically for, for direct consumer brands. I've talked with a lot of, of uh, um, VCs that are just no longer even touching the category. So it's definitely becoming an issue. I mean, it has been an issue. So for me, it's just like survival mode. You know, that's really it. Cash is king, whether you're an investor, business owner, et cetera. Um, and, it, and if you're not thinking that way, then I think it, it's going to be problematic because I think I think these economic issues are still in the early stages. And why do you think that it's been such a dramatic shift so quickly? Like why, why have companies had to you know, lay off so quickly or t- change their business plans or change their funding strategy? Is it because, you know, we were so used to such a frothy environment that all of our operating you know, decisions and budgeting were based on this kind of like crazy, crazy growth. And, and now that that's kind of you know, changed, we have to change the plans or did a lot of companies kind of be flat footed over the last you know, year? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, I think it's just a function of the market has changed. You know, the market was just dictated on growth. Right, even on the, the public markets and private venture, everything just growth. Like, doesn't matter if you're making money, losing money. Like, growth is 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 what people cared about. Now people care about profit and having a you know a real you know sustainable business. This is true. Like I said, a public market, private market. I spoke with you know an anecdote. I spoke with uh, a CEO of, of a venture back company who who told who who's now struggling to make payroll. And last year, she said, you know, the VCs told her to, to told them to blow twenty million dollars um, because they just wanted growth. Now, now you know these businesses are running out of cash, and the VCs want them to make profit. So that, I think that's a big reason why you're seeing these huge layoffs in a lot of these fast-growing tech companies, um, just because the market's changed. It's gone from just growth to profit, and um, as well as when I when I just like I said, it's become a lot harder to raise money. So, because people no longer have that in front of them, and, and you know the market was so easy to raise money that they they were able to to, to just lose money. And if you don't have that kind of um, if you don't have that kind of, uh, I don't know what the word I, my, losing the word for it. If you don't have that in front of you, then you have to just focus on, on dealing with, with the money you have at hand. 
then um, your mentality operating a business has changed. So it's also going to be interesting now because, you know, just as a function of the entire labor market, like the labor market has been insane. The employees have had all the leverage, all the power. Um, Retention has been awful for employers. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that's going to change over the next 12 months with all, with all these layoffs happening and how that's going to affect the job market and the salaries and comp and all that other stuff. Yeah. To your point, like it hasn't, you know, there's still a lot of room to go there. Like on the employee side, it's still very tight labor market. There's still people jumping ship from companies and they feel okay. You know, that they're going to find another job quickly. A lot of these people that are laid off are going to other companies pretty quickly. So there does seem to still be a lot of room to the downside for some of this stuff to get a lot, you know, harder for both employees and, and companies. And I've heard the same thing when it comes to like direct to consumer e-commerce brands, just being unappealing to investors because there's not many case studies that show that you can have a successful kind of venture scale outcome. You know, even some of the ones that have gone public have been hammered, you know, like Allbirds and Warby Parker and stuff because they chronically, you know, mask a bad business model with like external funding. And I think that, you know, that's, that's one of the issues with all the funding that went into e-commerce brands is they're, you know, one, they're just hard to scale. There's a physical component to it. There's products, there's operations. They're not necessarily meant to scale 10 X a hundred X in a short period of time and they're capital intensive. And then you had this kind of thought process that, Oh, they can scale as quickly as like a, a SaaS company. And I'm as a VC, like I need you to push on the pedal because you're not growing as fast as this other company in our portfolio. That's a SaaS company that creates a lot of bad incentives and a bad, bad behaviors. And now, you know, now you have a bunch of companies that kind of went down that path that it's going to be very hard for them to kind of shift yeah. mentality. And then if their investors are like, Hey, you know, sorry, but we're not going to, you know, foot the bill and help you kind of get through this. Like who's, who do you think's to blame in those situations? Is it, is it the CEO and the founder that, took the money and, and knew the business didn't work, but was being pushed down a certain path or is it, is it the investors? Um, it's really tough. Yeah. I mean, it's really tough to say because I think every situation is different because the thing is there still are the fast growing, uh, consumer brands that are public that are profitable and still getting affected the same way as the ones that are losing money. Right. Like, Solo brands. Uh, you see Hero Cosmetics sold what are yeah, 600 million, they were like 40% EBITDA margin or something. It, that's absolutely mind blowing. I, I, it's cre- I've never heard of a brand that scale that has that margins that high, insane. But yeah, um, yeah so there's like solo brands, the figs, like there's publicly traded consumer brands that are profitable and still getting just absolutely destroyed on the public markets. So it's not just the ones that are losing money and just cared about growth, right? That had these unsustainable um, um, business models. So it's happening to the ones that are also, in my eyes, you know, doing a great job and still getting affected negatively. So it's, yeah, it's just a, but it's not just consumer brands, right? It's like even, even tech companies, like they're getting absolutely destroyed private and public um, in the last 12 months in, in growth. So it's, it's really just a whole market right now. And yeah. And how, how have you run your businesses over time? I mean, you know, coming from New Jersey, starting from nothing and bootstrapping, like you typically have a different mentality than maybe the West coast, like offense run and go and make money one day in the future. Um, you know, have you typically tried to run them cash flow positive and reinvest that capital into other things? Yeah. So we, you know, I, bootstrapped since day one, all my companies. And it's always just been a function of profit first and reinvesting that into growth. And typically, you know, in in our organization, if it it was us growing brands, reinvesting that into influencers, into inventory, et cetera, into people, agency, investing that into different departments, into, you know, different leaders and et cetera. So, and I always joke my friends, like, we're doing everything the wrong way. I was always, we're trying to make profit. And there's these companies that just lose money that raise tens of millions. Like, I can't wrap my head around it. 
So, um, yeah. Especially when they let you sell secondaries along the way where you can keep losing money, but you can still cash out yeah. 10 million, 20 million. But the thing is, you know, I think now it's like the, a lot of these people are coming down to reality. And those, a lot of these companies that are on paper worth hundreds of millions of dollars, founders at the end of the day could devote, you know, a decade into it and have a $500 million company on paper and make no money because they raised so much money. And um, especially now, if you're, you're going to see a lot of companies raise down rounds and such. They give away, you know, all their, all their upside essentially to, to the investors. So a lot of these companies are now have put themselves into tough spots, especially ones that raised more than they needed. So yeah, it's just, it's just, I think just a, f- a function of how the market's changing and it just shows how quickly it can change. You know, it's, it's, it's really insane. So, yeah, yeah, it was, so, it was so abrupt. And now, I mean, you, you've got the agency with your brother, it's kind of full circle in a way because you had the ad platform, then you had a brand, then you had the agency, and you're kind of getting back into servicing other other companies. I mean, it's been a really, even before you know the stuff happening in the economy and the interest rates, it's been tough go for e-commerce. I mean, it's obviously from a top line growth standpoint, there's been a lot of net new growth and opportunity, but operating wise and cost wise, there's been all this you know delays and in inflation and stockouts, and you have you know shipping containers from overseas being incredibly expensive, like. No, you know, it's kind of been being punched in the face for the last three years, e-commerce. And what, what have you kind of, how do you see your clients kind of navigating that? And how are they, how are they faring right now and navigating it? And do you see any opportunities as, a, as an agency to potentially maybe pick up some brands and bring them in-house and, and potentially operate? Them? Yeah. So I wouldn't say last three years, because 20, I think 20, the second half of 2020 and first half of 2021 were was the best 12 months of e-commerce I've seen in my entire career, right? Because the, uh, the, co- the, the, the costs for advertising were incredibly low. Conversion rates were incredibly high and everyone was just buying stuff online because there was home all that. So iOS 14 impacted all that. And then everything else that you mentioned, then it, then it became just a really difficult environment for advertisers and brands and everyone after, after that. Um, so, um, well, and then, well, uh, so yeah, just curious, like how, how have you seen the brands that, you know, I don't know how many brands you're working with across, you know, snow agency, but you know, how, how did they kind of navigate some of the, the tricky situations over the last, let's say 12 to 18 months and now going into this kind of new normal, going forward, like how, what are you seeing from the portfolio? And then also, do you see opportunities as an agency to potentially pick up some of these brands um, and, and bring them in house and start operating? Yeah, I'm definitely seeing just like, I, just like I mentioned before, like how, you know, business owners should be thinking. It's like, I see a lot of them just into, into survival mode. They're cutting costs where they can. They're not using specific, um, apps and, and, and services that they might have been before, stuff that was before a luxury to them, they're cutting, um, cutting employees. So definitely seeing that kind of survival mode going on, um, you know, it's definitely been harder, especially post iOS 14 and, st- and everything else happened in the economy lately. Uh, it's, it's definitely been a harder landscape and just the advertising industry. Um, so yeah, that's how we're, we're kind of seeing it. But because there's been a lot of churn in, uh, in the agency world, just in general, um, because brands oftentimes like to think it's the agency, not you know, them as an operator, et cetera, there's definitely been an opportunity to get new, new, new uh, accounts in the, in the, in the door um, and great brands and so forth. So yep. there's definitely opportunity for that reason. Yeah. In general, you're a pretty, you know, from what I know from you know knowing you for a little while you're a pretty opportunistic person in terms of like oppor- you know investment opportunity i remember we were sitting at dinner you're talking about buying nvidia stock because you know the semiconductors are about to be supply constrained and profit margins are going to go up and stuff you know you, you also do your own personal investing and you know r- rental properties and stuff for somebody in your position let's say you have some cash on hand you know what what are the opportunities because in, in the rockiest climates typically creates the best you know, buying opportunities. Are you looking at things externally saying, Hey, this is a buying opportunity right now, or, or is somebody like you sitting on the sidelines and saying, Hey, I want to 
wait and see what happens with them. Yeah, so good memory, but it's also a good thing I, I sold that entire position because I, I had a lot in there um, and pretty much sold everything. But not everything, but all, all, essentially all my all my tech stocks, which was a good move. But it's also such a good, it's just like we're talking about how the market shifts and changes and 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 such. It's like I don't understand how as an and I still say this like as an investor, everyone has said the best thing to do as an investor is to not sell, and then these same people are saying why did you not sell? So I'm like I can't wrap my head. You know all these you read all these books. Um, Everything tells you to not sell. Essentially, just wait. But then now everyone is saying, sell when you have. Pro-. Like I don't. I just don't understand that. Uh, like that doesn't make sense. Like that just doesn't make sense to me. Um, I think everything's contextual around what's what's your time horizon. Like you, you'll never be able to time every market. You'll never be able to get in exactly. at the right time. Get out at the right time. time. Yeah, you can't time the market. But it's like these same people. Specifically, I work in the financial industry. Um, even people that I respect that say the same thing. Yeah, what's your time horizon? Don't sell. And then they say, you know, you, you should have you should have sold. Why, why would you not sell? So um, yeah, I just find that to be really interesting. But uh, anyways, yeah. So I'm sitting on the sidelines right now. I'm conserving more cash than ever, and I'm waiting for opportunity. I'm also talking with a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me, specifically around finance and the overall markets and real estate and stocks and public markets, et cetera. So it seems to me from a lot of the people I respect that now is not, well, on the stock market, you know, you should always dollar cost averaging specifically into um, the indexes. So that's, that's essentially the only thing I'm doing right now. Um, outside of that, I am not buying anything. So, I'm still just kind of waiting and seeing. I'm like I, like I said before. I think it's still early. Um, you know, I don't see a good opportunity to buy real estate right now because just like you mentioned, prices haven't come down yet, even though the rates have gone up tremendously. Um, so I don't see opportunity there. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people are in that same boat. They're just kind of wait and see. You know, even VC and private equity have all this money kind of sitting on the sidelines. And they're waiting to figure out like, because you, ne- you never know, you never want to catch a falling knife. Are we at the bottom? Are we not at the bottom? You know, and it's, it's just very hard to tell because things were so overinflated for so long. So, yeah. like, you know, like what equilibrium looks like. Exactly. So for that reason, that's why, you know, I think a lot of people got caught with that, right? Like picking stocks, picking cryptos, picking alts and thinking they're a genius because every this random stock went up 300%, whatever. And comes crashing down and they're holding the bag. So, and you just get so, you get so much of your time and attention sucked up in that um, and, emo- and emotions, even myself at times, right? So now I'm going with a much more conservative approach, just going into, you know, index funds. And it's great. I don't have to look at the stock market every day. I don't get emotionally invested. Um, I'm buying, you know, very conservatively. So, it definitely allows you to, to sleep better at night and not have to keep up with all the craziness of what's going on, when to buy, when to sell, et cetera. So that's definitely, I mean, it's, it's the direction I'm going right now at least. Yep, makes sense, cool. Well, last question that I typically have been ending on with, with all the guests is, you know, if, if there's a, a founder or team listening to this and they're one of those companies that's kind of has their back against the wall, you know, they're struggling to survive, they have to make tough decisions, maybe they, you know, they have limited runway, maybe three, six months or so. You know, if, if you're in that situation or you're advising that founder, what what are some of the things that you're telling them right now? So you're the advisor telling the founder. Yeah, you're a friend of the founder. You're their advisor. You know, they're in this really precarious situation. You know, they took bad advice or they made bad decisions. And now they're trying to get themselves out of this, you know, this hole. Um, and they have their back against the wall. What, what would be some of the things that you're telling them right now? I would say uh, to go read uh, Hard Things About Hard Things first because I think that, that book does a, does a great job of uh, um, summing up you know, on, 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 a, on a big level right now what's going on with so many companies. So other than, other than that, though, I would say 
you have, you know, I think that what people, what a lot of companies are doing with, if you're in that specific position, um, making hard cuts and hard decisions is, you know, while hard is, is, is necessary, um, even if you have emotional ties to some of those people, et cetera, I think that it's, you know, better than the outcome of, of the business potentially going, uh, going bankrupt if you really only have three months of runway left. And it's time to get creative. You know, it's, I know a lot of these founders also have been uh, um, not as hands-on as they should be, which in, in effect has allowed a lot of them to get in the situations they're in now. They're not, they weren't as close to their finances. They weren't as close to, to their team. Um, so I think now is the time to just get in that kind of survival mode and immerse yourself a lot more than ever into the business. Nope. I think sometimes moments like this where you have to kind of really get focused and, and grind it out are some of the biggest breakthroughs in the business. You know, like yeah. in those early days when you have very limited resources is where the most progress gets made. And then in the middle, like you're saying, kind of the fat times where things are good and they're kind of steady you disengage a bit and you know for the for the people that take it seriously and dig into the business you know, it could put them on a much better trajectory than than they were on before yeah. the other thing i would say also is a lot of times you know especially in, in, in a multifaceted business if you're not looking too closely into pnl of multiple departments like you you'd be shocked at what you're finding so taking a close look at that and doubling down where is making you the most profit profitable um and looking at others that, that are allowing you to burn money and, and such, um, just taking another look, closer look at that. Uh, a lot of people would be shocked at what they, they find. So, um, Mike, uh, I had Mike Beckham from Simple Modern on here, and you know he's built a hundred million plus you know company in in seven or eight years, and he was saying that they tranche their revenue by like channel. So they you know, they have a P and L for retail, they have a P and L for ecom, they have a P and L for wholesalers, and they just do they want to know the profitability per channel because they might say, Hey, we still want to grow this year, but we only want to grow in the channels that are most profitable for us. And the ones that we're actually losing, or maybe it's half the, the gross margin that we're used to. We're going to, you know, be less aggressive to scaling that side out, which I thought was an interesting way to kind of think about there yeah. you know, instead of just like overall margins and, and revenue. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially just, just cut it, you know, cutting fat. So whether it's in the platforms or where you're spending ads and marketing, maybe services you're using. So just seeing like ultimately what's absolutely necessary for your business and just trying to get yep. So, yeah. Sweet. Cool. Well, tons of fun. You, you have a, a lot of exposure to different companies and e-commerce and you kind of were at the start of some of these, you know, social platforms and, and direct to consumer businesses. So always interesting to hear your perspective and, and get another Miami person on the podcast and appreciate you spend some time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. More episodes are on the way. If you want to keep the conversation going, suggest questions, or nominate guests for future episodes, you can reach me on Twitter at Michael Martocci. Good luck and see you next time.